The Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew podcast is a verse-by-verse study with Torah Resource President and Instructor Tim Haig. These audio sessions were recorded over a three-year period during Shabbat services at Beit Hillel, located in Tacoma, Washington. We're starting on page 175, and we're starting uh, with verse 18, but let's review. Let's read uh, verses 17 through 20, and maybe we should read, read it in something that um, is different. Let's read it in a, let's read it in a, uh, a somewhat liberal uh, translation, shall we? New Revised Standard Version. Not too liberal. Uh, Verse 17 of chapter 5. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Boy, I like that translation. That was right on the mark. Maybe I'll I'll start using the new Revised Standard Version. They have have done some, some nice things. I like exactly what they did in 518, uh, their translation. I like 519, whoever breaks one of the least rather than a null. I think that's a good translation. Yeah, I'm, I'm surprised. Usually when I read the New Revised Standard Version. Oh, do they? Is that, does the King James Version have break? Well, as I've, as I've repeatedly said, the translators of the King James Version were the top scholars of their day. And they were no, they were no mean scholars. I mean, they were... Uh, Scholarship at that in that day was at a much higher level than it is today, far higher level. It was just commonplace that anyone with any education uh, knew Latin and Greek, besides English in the English-speaking countries. It was just that was just common. Everybody knew Latin and everybody knew Greek, which you can tell when you read the older older commentaries. They never translate the Latin. They never translate the Greek, and hardly do they translate the German. They just or or the French. They just expect that everybody has these. Many languages, and those of us that are um, at the edge of the universe in the 21st century, some of us, uh, you know, wonder how in the world they did that. When did they have time to learn all those languages? Of course, we know exactly how they had time. <laughs> they lived in a world without all of the all the mo- modern conveniences that we have that eat up all of our energy and time. So, yeah, I think the King James version has uh, a lot to commend it. And I, as I've also said, I think the King James Version translators, if they were doing their work today, would be elated to have the thousands of manuscripts that have been found since they did their work. Uh, they, they, if they had had them at their time, they certainly would have utilized them because they wanted to know uh, about as many manuscripts as possible. The unfortunate thing is that uh, Bible translation became a, a sectarian religious enterprise. And so once you have a, a translation entrenched in the Christian world for over 400 years, you're, you're, not, going to, you're not going to shake it. And, uh, but that, that's okay. Fortunately, it was, a, it was a, a good and worthy translation. And so if it had been a very poor translation, like the Vulgate was in some cases, then we probably wouldn't have had Protestant Christianity. Um, 
at least maybe not at, in the same way that that, that we do, uh, because of course you have the Geneva and the and the Tyndale and so forth before the King James Version, which were the uh, which spurred on the the Reformation. But um, still, if these tra you know don't get me off on this because we'll never get to Matthew, but translations have made a huge difference in the whole way uh, the whole pattern of how uh, centuries have gone. I mean, the Septuagint is a case in point. Um, the fact that the Septuagint, even in our... Now we can segue back to Matthew 5. Even, even the, the Septuagint use of namas to translate Torah. Namas is the Greek word for law. And the fact that the Septuagint regularly translated Torah by namas undoubtedly uh, caused some people to change their perspective on what Torah was. Torah does not primarily mean law. It means teaching. So they could have used a slightly more rounded term. Okay. At any rate, good translation. New American Revised Standard Version, at least on these four verses uh, in Matthew 5. And I haven't used it much more than that. Let's review uh, uh, verse 17 a bit. Why, why would anyone have thought that Yeshua had come to abolish the Torah? Why would he even have to say this to his disciples? Well, uh, as, as we mentioned last week, it isn't that he was in any way abolishing the Torah, but it could have appeared as such when he spoke against the prevailing traditions of his day. Uh, you have to remember that at the time of Yeshua, the oral Torah was in the process of being formulated and finalized. And so it held a very high and important place in the conversations of the rabbis. Um, when you have an, someone that is a, and I'm putting my fingers up with quotes, a country bumpkin that comes out of Nazareth, and uh, he comes and makes these uh, bold statements about how wrong the doctors and the scholars of the day are, it doesn't go over real well. And so you can imagine uh, that there were rumors started about him that he was undermining the authorities and that he was not to be listened to and that he was taking the people away from what was right uh, when he was uh, confronting them. So that probably is what is going on there when he says, uh, do not think I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. Now, why does he combine law and prophets? Well, because he sees the law, the Torah, as the foundation, but he sees the prophets as absolutely valid. And what is more, he sees a prophetic aspect of the Torah. The Torah is not just a list of do's and don'ts. The Torah is a covenant enacted by God with Abraham, with his people, uh, Israel, and it has a future. It has a, uh, a promise for the future. And the prophets took up that covenant and continued to make that a central point of their message. So the Torah and the prophets hang together, which I think is a very interesting point, maybe that we did. I don't remember if we emphasized it last week or not. The current convention of Christianity that wants to say the Torah has been abolished, they would never have said the prophets have been abolished, right? I mean, you hear, you, you hear it regularly said that, oh, the law has been abolished, that Jesus did away with the law when he, when he came and died on the cross. But you never hear somebody saying he did away with the prophets. And yet, Yeshua himself here combines the two. Don't let anybody say, I have come to abolish the Torah and the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill. 
And we talked about this uh, fulfill, which is usually where everybody stops. Everybody says, see, he, he didn't come to abolish. We're not saying he abolished it, but he came to fulfill it. And by that, oftentimes people mean that he came to finish it. You know, there was a little bit to be finished up about it. He finished it, and now it's finished. We don't have to concern ourselves with it anymore. And we spent some time last week talking about what words might have been uh, in, in Yeshua's, on Yeshua's lips when he actually spoke this. We're quite certain he wasn't speaking Greek. So what was he speaking? Well, he may have been speaking Hebrew. He may have been speaking Aramaic. There are a number of terms that could have been utilized. The Greek word that is found here, which is the, the verb plerao, which means to fill up, it's the word that's used throughout the apostolic scriptures when, it's, when it talks about the, filling, uh, the fulfilling of prophecy. When it says, this was done so that the words of Isaiah might be fulfilled. Same word, plerao, to fill up to uh, uh, bring to its uh, fruition. Well, that's the word that's used in the Greek. Word, uh, what word does usually does that translate in, uh, in the uh, Septuagint? Uh, when the Septuagint is using plerao, what Hebrew word is behind it? Well, usually it's the, the word Hebrew word malay. And malay means that same thing, to fill up, to fill up a pitcher, to fill up a, a glass, to, to fill something up with grain. It's the same kind of, of idea. Uh, but we showed a couple of times where the word is used to mean to confirm. For instance, when Bathsheba is told by the prophet Nathan, do you realize that uh, Abijah has declared himself king? And didn't King David promise you that your son Solomon would be king? Why don't you go in and inform your master, the king, that this is what has happened? And then ask him the question, did you not promise that Solomon would be your successor on the throne? And when you have gone in, I will come in after you and I will fill up your words. I will confirm your words. And so my suggestion is, is that is probably why the word plerao is used here. That Yeshua said, I didn't come to abolish the Torah, but I came to fill it up. To make it what it's supposed to be. Now, the fact that people usually stop at verse 17 is the unfortunate part. Because each one of these verses, 18, 19, and 20, are linked to verse 17 by way of a clear grammatical connective. In verse 18, we have the word for. And in verse 19, we have the word therefore, which unfortunately is hidden in the New American Standard Translation. The New American Standard Translation says, whoever then annuls one of these, but the word then actually should be therefore. Whoever therefore annuls one of these. So you have therefore, uh, for in verse 18, therefore in verse 19, and verse 24 again. All of these words are linking the, them together. So, how do we understand uh, the way that these verses parallel? Each one of these verses, verses 18, 19, 20, are given to expand, to amplify, to describe what Yeshua means in the opening uh, statement. Do not think I have come to abolish the law and the prophets, or the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And then he says, so let me explain. For why could I have not abolished the, the Torah and the prophets? 
And the fact that the Torah and the prophets is not abolished and is very much active, what does that mean now for you as my disciples? Verse 19. Therefore, here's what you're to do about it. And what are the results if you don't do it? Verse 20. For, here's a motivation for you to do it. Here's a motivation for you to think seriously about the Torah and the prophets. Because anyone whose righteousness does not exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees won't even enter the kingdom of of heaven. So, you know, and again, taking if we take this little piece just out of context, what does it sound like? It sounds like, oh, you work your way into the kingdom of heaven. That the more you do, the more I mean, doesn't isn't that the way it sounds that when you just first read it, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Of course, that will have to be a point of our discussion. How could our righteousness exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees? And did what did Yeshua mean by that? So, we leave that for another time um, so let's go to verse 18 then on page 175 <clears throat> any any questions or uh, additions or comments about uh, verse 17 from last week or I'm sure you've been mulling it over most of your spare time since then so um, if you any of those come up just let me know okay so verse 18 for truly I say to you till heaven and earth pass away not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the Torah until all is accomplished as I said, this four connects the verse to, its for, to the former verse. It gives further support for the claim that Yeshua did not come to subvert the Torah. We have a parallel in Luke. Luke has it this way. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the Torah to fail. And here we have a different word than what uh, uh, Matthew uses. Instead of uh, shall not pass away, parekomai, we have here uh, pipto, which means to fall. Shall not fall away or fall off. So let's see how these parallel. In verse 17, Yeshua talked about he didn't come to abolish. Now he uses the term to pass away. So we can see he's starting to help us define and understand what he means by abolish. What does he say? I didn't come to abolish the Torah. He meant I didn't come to cause any part of it to pass away. In fact, None of it will pass away. And he says, until all is fulfilled. What does he mean by fulfilled? He means all is accomplished, which we'll talk more about. So, this verse helps to clarify and amplify and emphasize the statement of verse 17. The opening words of our verse introduce us to a repeated phrase used by our Master. And um, this is where I got sidetracked today. So, Because it's hard for... it was. I'm sure I'm not... I know I'm clearly not the first one to be bothered by this, but why did how, wouldn't we expect this kind of phrase to show up in other literature, like some of the older rabbinic literature or somewhere? And I just couldn't find any where a person starts out with the word amen, which is what we have here. I know it's translated for truly I say to you, but in the Greek it says amen, lego umin, amen I say to you. It's the it's the word amen. That's usually how we what? That's how we end our prayers, or, or when we affirm something that someone has said, and this is how it is used throughout, throughout the Tanakh. Now, in Matthew, the use of "amen" in this introductory form, formula, which is always with "I say to you," "amen," I say to you. It's found 30 additional times besides our verse. I've listed them for you for those of you that are interested. Mark has it 14 times. One is is textually disputed, so some would. Counted as only 13 in Luke six times. Every time the Gospel of John has this, he doubles it. 
All the synoptics just say, Amen, I say to you. John doubles it. Amen, Amen, I say to you. And so we get the truly, trulys, uh, the way it's translated in most of our English versions. Truly, truly, I say to you. Why do you suppose John doubled it? Was John one of these extroverts that just took everything over the edge? Maybe a little bit? I don't know. <laughs> you think so? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you, when you read him, you, he, 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 he clearly is very, very black and white. He has very little gray. He has very little uh, room in between for, for slack. You're either yes or you're no. You're either black or you're white. You're either in or you're out. Uh, you either love God or you hate him. It's, it's, uh, there's n- not much in between. So I, I, thought, I, I thought, too, um, as we get further on in chapter 5, we'll see um, that where, you know, Yeshua says not to take an oath, don't take an oath, but let your yes be yes and you know no. When you say, the rabbis say when you say something twice, it can be, a, it can be an oath. Amen, amen means I really mean it. Uh, did, did John want to put in the mouth of Yeshua these oaths that, are, that he was taking with regard to the prophecies of the end times and so forth and so on? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe we can, when we study the book of John, we'll, we'll decide. The Greek word, amen, is what we call a loan word. It's like our word garage or uh, what's another loan word in English? Uh, Okay, you know, all of these words which are really just uh, a foreign word that we've taken into, into our language. It's something that we have borrowed from another language and just taken it in. In modern Hebrew, there's a lot of these, right? Radio, chocolat, uh, museon, etc., etc. Yeah. So, yeah, kindergarten is another one that we took from, uh, from the German. Right. So, um, this is a loan word. In other words, it's not a Greek word. It's just the Greek taking the letters and transliterating the Hebrew Amen. We do find the double Amen three times in Psalm 41, 72, and 89, which are in each case the end of the book, the first book, the second book, and the third book of Psalms, end with Amen and Amen, which is interesting. The primary meaning of the Hebrew word is linked to the verb Amon, meaning to be firm, trustworthy, or safe. The hifil stem of Amon connotes faithfulness, to trust and to be trustworthy. Amin. And we oftentimes hear the participle. Anima Amin. I believe. I trust. While the nifil connotes to be permanent, to endure. Thus the noun Amin generally means surely, as a solemn affirmation, validating an oath, especially in covenant contexts. Is that how Yeshua is using it? No. The use of Amen as an affirmation of one's own teaching, however, finds scant parallels outside of its use by Yeshua in the Gospels. Maybe I shouldn't have said scant. I should have said I couldn't find any. Some have suggested that Yeshua utilized Amen in order to avoid using an oath, but this finds little support in any parallel literature. Moreover, in the rabbinic literature, responding with yes, which would be equivalent to Amen, is equivalent to an oath, and using the double yes, yes uh, also constitutes an oath according to the rabbis. Chilton has suggested that the Greek Amen in, in the I say formula of Yeshua derives from an original Aramaic Bekusheta, meaning in truth. I don't want to get you into the, uh, all the, the doldrums of this, but I, I thought it was interesting that one of the Hebrew Matthews that I constantly check, um, it, is the, uh, it is the Evan Bohan, it actually has, in truth I say to you, or in truth I am saying to you. 
So it understood Amen to mean in truth. Be'emet. Be'emet ani omer lechem. What does it mean? Well, I think Chilton's suggestion is uh, is interesting, but I, again, don't think that it finds much textual support. More than likely, and oh, let me just back up and say, if if this came from an Aramaic, wouldn't we expect the Peshitta, which is the Aramaic earliest Aramaic translation or Syriac translation of the of the Apostolic Scriptures, wouldn't we expect it to be there? And it's not. It has Amen. So I think it's it's an interesting suggestion, but I don't think it has much uh, warrant. More than likely, our Master's use of the phrase Amen, I say to you, derives from an increased use of Amen in liturgical settings of the Hellenistic period and is used for emphasis. But not merely a literary emphasis, but more akin to an equivalent, thus says Adonai. When Yeshua says, Amen, I say to you, I think... There's the very possibility that he's saying, listen up, folks. This is not just any prophet or teacher telling you this. This is a firm, affirmed word with divine imprimatur. Now, some would, all of the commentators say, but we shouldn't take it so far as to say that he was asserting his divinity. Well, I don't know. I looked at every one of those 31 places in Matthew today, and every one of those are strategic with regard to his rule, his reign, the coming kingdom, so forth and so on. Judgment. By the way, who is going to be the judge? He holds the keys to, to, to uh, death and hell, right? Which means he opens and locks the door. So he has that. He has that authority. So it's not merely an emphasis, uh, but it is akin to, thus says Adonai, found so often in the Tanakh. When Yeshua says, Amen, I say to you, he is not only claiming to be God's prophetic spokesman, but he is affirming his own authority as the Messiah of God who speaks with the divine authority. Consider Matthew 24:35, which speaks directly to our verse. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Is in this case Yeshua putting his words above the Torah? I don't think so. We'll talk more about that. But in this case, I think he's saying, if heaven and earth were to pass away, even right now, if, you know, it's like we sing... If the sun stopped to shine, uh, if the waves failed to come to the shore, it's still what? The Lord reigns forever and ever. And he's using that same kind of literary motif. If, if the worst happened, my words would still remain. His words are equivalent with Torah, which, which means he can't be putting them above, above Torah. Yeah, right. But his interpretations are inspired. That's different than the interpretations of Akiva or Hillel or Shammai. As good as, as they may have been or insightful as, as they might be, we have the direct heart of God revealed to us in the Messiah Yeshua. That is our faith. That is what we believe. And that is why it is always, always has been, always will be the intention of the evil one to undermine Yeshua. He is not called anti-Messiah for nothing. He is anti-Messiah. He would much rather have us be fooled by a false Messiah than to follow the true Messiah. The true Messiah is his nemesis. The true Messiah is his defeat. I mean, he's already been defeated. And, 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 and the evil one is just dumb enough to think that he might be able to overturn the Holy One. I don't know. You know, He knows better than that, you would think. But perhaps he's been deceived himself, self-deceived. Um, and God has allowed that or maybe even uh, procured that. But all of this that is going on in our day particularly, well, why, do you think that the, why do you think that the, that the evil one wants to undermine the authority of scriptures? 
He doesn't care one bit if you keep the Sabbath or not. He doesn't care if you eat rabbit. Uh, but He does care whether or not you proclaim Yeshua to be God's Son and His Messiah. He cares about that. And if He can undermine the Scriptures, He can undermine that faith. And so, you know, it, it's it's just amazing to me... I, and I admit I am out of touch. I don't. I don't. Uh, I don't read the main media very often anymore, or listen to it either. But it just is amazing to me to see the the intersection of worldwide acceptance of Islam on the one hand, and the unbelievable amount of energy that's being put in to movies, books, and so forth to discredit Yeshua. At the same time, at the same intersection, we have this exaltation of Islam and the utter demise uh, of our Messiah. That he is some kind of a conniving scoundrel who really was in cahoots with Judas and uh, who had all kinds of subversive approaches to things. And we were talking on, my wife and I were talking on the way here. It, it is a test for the people of God to see how vulnerable we really are. And unfortunately, I think many who who claim the name of Yeshua are very vulnerable because I think they are ill-taught and ill-prepared to, um, to battle these kinds of things. But the Word of God will stand us in good stead. Heaven and earth will pass away, Yeshua said, but my words will not pass away. The Da Vinci Code will come and go and Yeshua's words will not pass away. You can count on it. I like this quote from a German scholar. Thus, in the Amen preceding the I say to you of Jesus, we have the whole Christology in a nutshell. The one who accepts his word as true and certain is also the one who acknowledges and affirms it in his own life and thus causes it as fulfilled by him to become a demand to others. When he says truly or Amen, I say to you, it's this is something you need to do. This is something that is from the heart of God. The argument of our master in the current verse then is that his coming could not be to invalidate the Torah since the Torah itself is inviolable. You can't invalidate the Torah. You can neglect it yourself. You can teach others to neglect it. It doesn't do anything to the Torah. Not the smallest letter or stroke will fall from the Torah. As the incarnate one, and here's something that would be worthy of our further thought and discussion, as the incarnate one, Yeshua came in submission to the Torah, not as standing above it. In his incarnation, Yeshua did not have the right. In his incarnation, he gave up that right. He gave up that ability to stand above the Torah. Right? It says in, in Galatians 4, When the fullness of time have, had come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the Torah. He could not have been teaching his disciples the Torah is done away with. If he had, he would not have been under the Torah. He would not have... And he's, in order to redeem those who are under the Torah, he came in submission to the Torah. Both in word and deed, he affirms what the psalmist declares. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. We may consider the parallel use of the created universe as a standard of permanency in the Tanakh. Usually the way this verse is read, and you know, I, I read it this way, and maybe I still do. I'm, I'm not sure. But it sounds like until heaven and earth passes away, not the, the smallest letter or the least stroke of the Torah will, will pass away. Or will, uh, how do we want to translate it? Uh, until will uh, pass away from the Torah until all is fulfilled. 
Usually the way that's understood is, and when the heavens and the earth do pass away, that's when the Torah will be done away with. That as long as the heavens and the earth are here, the Torah is viable. But as soon as the heavens and the earth pass away, uh, the Torah will also pass away. Well, will we need the Torah in the world to come? Will, will we need the Torah in the millennium? Yes, of course. Will we need the Torah in the world to come? <laughs> the Torah is, if, 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 if heaven and earth passes away, but my words will not pass away, then most certainly the Torah will be, will be there. Now, we'll talk about the discussion of some of the rabbis who, who are interpreted as though they say uh, otherwise. But, uh, so, what does it mean when he says, he, until heaven and earth pass away? And in another place in Matthew, he says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will not. So if we put these two together, it sounds like there's coming a time when the Torah is going to pass away. I mean, isn't that the way it's usually read? It's not now, but there's coming a time when it's going to. Well, I'd like to challenge that. Um, the reason I'd like to challenge it is because of the way this same language is used in the Tanakh. The language employed to demonstrate that the Davidic covenant is eternal utilizes the created order. His, that is, David's descendants shall endure forever. That, that's, that's a forever language. And his throne as the sun before me. So in parallel with forever is as the sun. It shall be established forever like the moon. And the witness in the sky is faithful. As far as the ancient, ancient man is concerned, the sun and the moon and the earth were never going away. We have the same language in Jeremiah 30, 33. Thus says the Lord, If you can break my covenant for the day and my covenant for the night, so that the day and night will not be at their appointed time, then my covenant may also be broken with David, my servant, so that he will not have a son to reign on his throne, and with Levitical priests, my ministers. So, basically, this ties together the Noahic covenant, the covenant with Noah and the Davidic covenant, right? What did the Noahic covenant say? Seed time and harvest, so forth, will not... Cease, right? In other words, there will be this continual pattern in, in the universe, and that is a covenant that God made. And he, now he, he says, if you can break my covenant with Noah, then you, you can also see that my covenant with David is broken. So he, he ties the two together. Consider as well Psalm 148, 3-6. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all stars of light. Praise Him, highest heavens and the waters that are above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for He commanded and they were created. He has also established them forever and ever. He has made a decree that will not pass away. Likewise, the inviolability of the covenant made with Israel is described in terms of the created world by Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day, the fixed order of the moon and stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel will also cease from being a nation before me forever. So it sounds like when Yeshua says, until heaven and earth passes away, and by the way, that isn't going to happen, it sounds like he's using something that is settled and, and given the idea of eternity. So he's basically saying, not the least stroke or not the smallest letter will ever pass away from the Torah. Because if we take this language out of the stock, it sounds like he's simply saying, every letter, every stroke is forever. This teaching is one of the 218 audio sessions found in the five-volume teaching series titled A Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew by Tim Haig from Tor Resource. This product is the fruit of over three years of studying and teaching through the Gospel of Matthew, verse by verse and from a messianic perspective. The five-volume set is available in softcover book or digitally as PDF files. 
To order your copy today, visit torresource.com. It is often remarked that though the Tanakh uses the created universe as a standard for eternal viability, Yeshua is well aware that the present heavens and earth will be destroyed, as noted above in his words that heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away, Matthew 24:35. Peter also reiterates what must have been an accepted teaching of his day in 2 Peter 3:10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. That doesn't say anything about necessarily the heavens there, but uh, it sounds like the earth is going to be destroyed. On the basis of Matthew 24.35, these commentators conclude, Matthew 5.18b, like 24.35 and the following paragraph, envisions the end of the heaven and earth without stating the manner of their passing. The law, in contrast to, to Jesus' words, therefore only endures until the heavens and earth are gone. It is not eternal. Another commentator, Hagner, who take, takes a similar view, however, he rightly emphasizes the enduring viability of the Torah for the current age. And Allison Davies does the same, actually. The words of the first clause, until heaven and earth pass away, are not simply a popular way of saying never. That's what I was suggesting they were. So he disagrees. They refer instead to the end of time as we know it and the beginning of eschatology proper, that is, the time of the regeneration of the created order. In other words, the law, as interpreted by Jesus, will remain valid until the close of the age. Well, even if we only took that, even if we only took that view, that still works, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's more than enough for all of us. And when this age ends, then we can ask Yeshua, now, what, what about the Torah? We can ask him, Okay, whatever you say, we obviously will do. So, and then he can tell us. So, in one way, it's a bit moot to even argue this. But it, it seems to me that there's enough language in the Tanakh that says that the, that this is an eternal aspect of God. And by the way, what is the Torah anyway? I mean, if we had to step back to, it's God's word. And if and if we even step back further and try to get the, the full pa- panoramic view of what it is, it is the revelation of God Himself. It is the inscripturated or the verbal revelation of the very nature of God. How can that change? How can that pass away? Now, some might say, well, in terms of covenant or in terms of covenant obligations, okay, maybe, there can, maybe we could see that. For instance, as far as we can understand uh, from what the scriptures say, in the world to come, I'm not talking about the millennial age or the messianic age, as the rabbis would call it, but, but the world to come, there will be no sin, right? So there will be no need for a sin offering. There will be no need for a transgress offering, right? So I can understand how the rabbis were saying, yes, there's, there is a temporality, as it were, to certain aspects of the Torah. Now, there are those of our Christian brothers and sisters who have said, well, the same thing is true for us. You know, even as you say, eventually some of the commandments will go away. Um, we say some of them have gone away now. We're just doing it a little earlier than you. But even any way you take this verse, it has to teach that Yeshua says, I'm telling you the heart of God. Amen, I say to you. Until heaven and earth passes away, not the smallest stroke of the Torah will pass away until everything is accomplished. And remember, he's already tied the Torah to the prophets. All right.
However, the idea that Yeshua knew of the eventual passing of the heavens and the earth does not mean that in the verse under investigation he intends to teach that the Torah has a limited span of viability. The context, along with the parallels given above from the Tanakh, would emphasize that the point of our Master's words here is the eternal inviolability of the Torah. That's his point. He's not trying to teach us when it's going to end. What he's trying to teach us is it's always for us. Nothing is going to fail of the Torah. That's his primary point. I like what Montefiore says here. <laughs> this guy was full of spunk, I guarantee you. This was, uh, this was written in 1909, so this is a few years ago. Some commentators do not seem to understand what the divineness of the law means. It is all very well for a modern critic with his comfortable distinctions between letter and spirit, human element and divine element, and so on. These were quite unknown in Jewish society in the age of Christ. If you believe that the law was divine, you believed that it was all divine, and not only a few sentences here and there. You took the law at its own valuation. The law does not claim to be divine here and human there, permanent in one place and transitory in another. It is all divine and all permanent. God ordered the Jews not to eat rabbits ever bit as much as he ordered them not to murder or to commit adultery. He ordered them not to wear a garment of linen and woolen ever bit as much as he ordered them to show justice and pity to the orphan and the widow. If Jesus showed any hesitation in admitting this, or rather if his teaching was even inconsistent with it, the rabbis, with their acute logic, could easily have exposed him. But I fancy that Jesus would hardly have agreed with some of the things which are said about him. The fact that the rabbis also seem to be inconsistent regarding the eternal nature of the Torah and that some even appear to teach that the Torah, parts of it would be established in the Messian, abolished in the Messianic age is often quoted by commentators on our text. Note the following. The Tana Debei Eliyahu teaches, the world is to exist 6,000 years. In the first 2,000 there was desolation. 2,000 years the Torah flourished. And the next 2,000 years is the Messianic era but through our own iniquities, all these years have been lost. Uh, you know, it's standard, fairly standard rabbinic teaching that the, that the Messiah showed up at 4,000 years from creation. But because of their disobedience, they missed him. And so then, so he now tarries. He waits. He waits for Israel to come back to obedience. And then he will, he will come. Um, in fact, Yeshua did come almost exactly at 4,000 years. So they weren't that far off. In this text, however, the ages are divided as 2,000 years from the creation to the time when Abraham was 52, according to the rabbis. And at that time in his life, he began to convert pagans to the worship of the true God. There were 2,000 years from Abraham's 52nd year to 172 years after the destruction of the temple, again, according to the rabbinic reckoning. And the final 2,000 years is the period in which the Messiah would appear. But as, as uh, this particular Tana says, we missed him or because of our iniquities. But this rabbinic saying does not imply that the Torah ceases, only that the giving of the Torah to Abraham was a distinguishing factor in identifying the subsequent era. And by the way, the rabbis do believe that the Torah was given to Abraham. At least some of the rabbis do. Because he kept the statutes and the ordinances and the precepts in the Torah. I mean, that's what it says in Genesis 18. So, um, they say, basically, what distinguished the period from Abraham's 52nd year up until the destruction and past the destruction of the temple was that God was God gave Abraham really he was the first one to have the Torah in more of a fullness and it and it maintained its time all the way up until 
till the final Jewish revolt when everybody was dispersed. And then all of the rabbis admit that the glory of the Torah left Israel. Why? Because the Sanhedrin no longer was around. So it's not saying that the Torah itself was abolished. It's just saying that, that the Torah flourished in this era. Here's another one. It, um, our rabbis taught a garment in which kilayim, that is a mixture, was lost, or literally the, the Hebrew says could not be extracted, may not be sold to an idolater. Why? Well, because if you think that there's shotnez, if, shotnez, if you think that there's wool and linen together, it's prohibited, right, in the Torah. So if you sell it to an idolater, what's the possibility? He's going to sell it back to an Israelite. Israelite's going to wear it and, and, and break Torah. Nor may one make, it of a, make of it a pack saddle for an ass, but it may be made into a shroud for a corpse. So you can't wear it, but you can, you can wrap your, your, your uh, dead loved one with it. Rabbi Joseph observed, this implies that the commandments will be abolished in the hereafter. If a living Jew can't wear this garment, but a dead Jew can, what does that say? Said Abai, or as some say, Rabbi Demi to him, but did not Rabbi uh, Mani in the name of Rabbi Yanai state, this was learned only in regard to the time of the lamentations, but for burial this is forbidden? In other words, in a time of deep mourning, when someone had need of, of, of a mourning cloth, they could wear this garment that was suspect, but not for burial. The other replied, but was it not stated in connection with it, Rabbi Yochanan ruled even for burial? And thereby, Rabbi Yochanan followed his previously expressed view. For Rabbi Yochanan stated, what is the purport of the scriptural text, free among the dead, Psalm 88.6? As soon as a man dies, he is free from the commandments. Of course, the rabbis believe that that people are going to resurrect. At least the Pharisees did, right? By the way, does that the last phrase remind you of something Paul teaches in Romans chapter 7? <laughs> that a person is under the obligation of the Torah until he dies? The discussion relates to a forbidden garment containing wool and flax. Since it is ruled as usable for a shroud in which the bear, to bury the dead, the conclusion is that the commandments will be abolished in the hereafter, literally in the time to come. But the context seems to imply that the hereafter does not refer necessarily to the Messianic age, but to the period between a person's death and his resurrection. So, when you're, when you're in the grave, or your body's in the grave, and you have not yet been resurrected, how many of the Torah commandments re relate to you? As many as you're capable of doing. Which is how many? Zero. Right. Okay, so, so they have a point, right? For a dead person, this doesn't matter. He's not keeping the commandments anymore. He has no ability to keep the commandments. But the context uh, doesn't... The conclusion is that a dead person is free from the commandments. That doesn't say that the Torah is going to be abolished in the Messianic age. And by the way, these two, if you read in the commentaries, they will say the rabbis taught that the Torah would be abolished in the age to come. And they quote these two passages. I mean, they don't quote them. They just note them in the footnotes. When you go look them up, it doesn't quite say that. On the other hand, there are clear statements of the rabbis regarding the eternality of the Torah. And the heaven and the earth were finished. Vayakulu, uh, that's in Genesis 2. I, 2 1. I have seen an end to every purpose, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. Psalm 119.96. Everything has a measure. Heaven and earth have a measure, except one thing which has no measure. And what is it? The Torah. Of which it is written, the measure thereof is longer than the earth. Meaning, what? For an ancient person to say, the measure of something is bigger than the earth? It means it's infinite. Cannot be, it cannot be measured. It's eternal. It doesn't go away. 
The point of all this discussion as it relates to the words of Yeshua in our text is that he taught the unchanging nature of the Torah. The fact that he uses the created order as a standard for the inviolability of the Torah and later speaks of his own words existing even when the heavens and earth pass away should not be so tightly drawn together as though he is saying that when the heavens and earth pass away, the Torah will likewise pass away. In our current text, the emphasis is upon the eternal nature of the Torah as the indestructible word of God. And that's, I think, why he uses heaven and earth. What does he mean by not the smallest letter or stroke? The smallest letter translates Greek iota, which represented the Hebrew yod to a Greek-speaking audience. In other words, if you were going to take a Hebrew word that had a yod and write it in Greek, whenever you found a yod, you would write an, uh, uh, an iota. A very small letter anyway. The yod is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet when written in the square Aramaic script. It's not so in the archaic script. In the archaic script, it's quite large, actually. So what does this tell us? Well, the square script was clearly being used in the time of Yeshua. He wouldn't have used this analogy if it hadn't been. An interesting rabbinic tale regarding the Yod is found in the Midrash. You know, the problem with studying Midrash is you, get, you, you go on too many rabbit trails. Because the, the rabbis go on rabbit trails. But they're really fun rabbit trails. That's why I didn't get as many pages out today as I should have. When God gave the Torah to Israel, he inserted therein positive and negative commands and gave some commandments for a king, as it says, only he shall not multiply horses to himself, neither shall he multiply wives to himself. And the word for will multiply is yarbei, that his heart turn not away, neither silver and gold. But Solomon arose and studied the reason of God's decree, saying, why did God command he shall not multiply wives to himself? Is it not that his heart turned not away? Well, I will multiply and still my heart will not turn away. In other words, there's a little play on the Hebrew here. He changed the future, Yarbe, to Rabbe, past tense. So he made it to read, this is the Midrash, not that he actually did this, but he made it to read, the king did not multiply wives to himself, not will not did not in the past. So not forbidding him to do it in the future, only stating that he hadn't done it in the past. He says, well, I will multiply and still my heart will not turn away. Our sages said, at that time the yod of the word yarbe, because you take the yod off when you make it a past tense. Okay? For those of you that don't know Hebrew, when it's imperfect, it has the yod at the front. When it's not imperfect, the yod goes away. So you take the yod off, it makes it past tense. Put the yod on, it makes it future tense. At that time, the yod of the word Yarbe went up on high and prostrated itself before God and said, Master of the universe, have you not said that no letter shall ever be abolished from the Torah? Now, where did he say that? It almost sounds like they're quoting our master. Behold, Shlomo has now arisen and abolished one. Who knows? Today he has abolished one letter. Tomorrow he will abolish another until the whole Torah will be nullified. God replied, Solomon and a thousand like him will pass away but the smallest tittle, and that's kotze, will not be erased from you. And then, I didn't, read, I didn't want to fill the whole page with Midrash. And then the Yod goes on and says, well, how can I be sure of that? He said, if, if Solomon took away the Yod, did I not replace it? And he said, where did you replace it? He said, well, we had Sarai, and I made it Sarah. So I took that Yod and put it back where it was supposed to be. Back the one Solomon took out. I erased a, a yod from Sarai and made it Sarah. Took that yod and put it back where, Solomon, where it should be. 
So he says, I keep all the... It's like God is the perfect scribe. He keeps all the letters. You know, according to the... The, the rabbis are playing these fun games with, uh, with the text. But what does it tell us? It shows us that the rabbinic perspective was that every letter was eternal. The Greek word translated stroke is karea, which has been variously interpreted. A popular understanding, and this is very prevalent amongst Messianics, is that it refers to the crown or keter that was placed on various letters. You know in the Torah scroll, for instance on the sheen, on, on the one leg there's, there's, little, there's little crowns that are put on certain of the letters, right? Apparently, originally to distinguish them from other letters. These do not affect the meaning of the words and thus it is taught that even the scribal embellishments to the text would be preserved. In other words, Yeshua is even going beyond the letter of the, uh, of the text down to the, the, the scribal art, the little embellishments they put on them. However, it is quite certain that this is a later scribal phenomenon, something that was not extant in the first century. More likely, the combination of Yoda and Kreya should be understood as a Hindiatus, meaning the smallest stroke of the smallest letter. Not the smallest stroke of the smallest letter will pass away. And by the way, did I, did I put it in here? Rashi understands this kotse of, uh, of the text, the Midrash text, to be the little end of the yod. You know, when you make a yod, it's just like an apostrophe. The very first little stroke, he, he says, that's, that's the small point, point that it can't be taken away. Not only is our master affirming the eternal nature of the written Torah, he is doing so in the strongest of ways. The rabbis affirm the same perspective. It is written, Leviticus 22.32, Lo techalalu et shem kadoshi. You shall not profane my holy name. Whoever shall change a chet into a hay destroys the world. For then, lo techalalu, written with a hay, makes the sense, you shall not praise my holy name. All you have to do is change one little stroke and it changes profane to praise. It is written in Psalm 156, Let every spirit praise Yah. Whosoever changes a hay into a chet destroys the world. It would read, Let every spirit profane the Lord. It is written in Jeremiah 5.12, They lied against the Lord. Whoever changes a bet into a cough destroys the world. It would read, like the Lord, they lied. And how easy is it to change a bed into a cough? All you need to do is not have that little thing at the very, very bottom of the base, right? Just make it curved rather than square. and It's not very much. It is written, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. The Lord our God is one, Lord. He that changeth a dalit into a resh destroys the world. It would read, the Lord our God is another Lord. Echad as opposed to Acher. Yeah, the, the rabbis were pretty uh, were pretty much in line with Yeshua, or Yeshua in, in line with the rabbis. As one as one commentator or author that I read today said, uh, Yeshua is not simply being radical with regard to the Torah; he's being extremely radical. Not that, and I that's why I like this NASB for truly or new RSV. Excuse me, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter. And I would, I would emphasize not the smallest letter or the smallest stroke on that letter will pass away. So, you think Yeshua believed in the verbal plenary inspiration of the Scriptures? I mean, He had to believe that every part of it was important until all is accomplished. 
The way this is translated, it sounds as though when all is accomplished, then matters of the Torah would pass away. Right? Until heaven and earth. Of course, we have two untils here, and it's kind of difficult to understand how those fit together. But this is not necessarily the force of the conjunction until. The Septuagint regularly translates the Hebrew odd, meaning as far as, unto, until, with the word eos, the word we have here. And sometimes the Hebrew odd can have the sense of with a view toward or resulting in. Sometime I'm, I plan on cataloging some of these because I don't find them readily listed in the lexicons. Take, for instance, Psalm 110.1. The Lord said to my Lord, Adonai said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, what? Until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Does that mean that he sits at the right hand of God until his enemies are made a footstool and then he no longer sits at the right hand? Sit at my right hand until your enemies are made a footstool for your feet. But it sounds as though if we were to understand it in a normal until means once this happens, you no longer sit there. It's like when the, when the parent says to the, the disobedient child, now you sit in that chair until I tell you you can get up. Which means what? When I tell you you can get up, you don't have to sit in that chair anymore. I think when he says uh, the prophets prophesied, you know, until John, or you know, and the idea is is that it can mean, I think, and um, I need to work harder to about, prove this. Are you talking about Luke sixteen sixteen? Which is what? The law and the pro- uh, and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been uh, right. preached, and everyone is uh, pressing into pressing it. into it. Right. But but at any rate, the, the word until in these cases. At least we know it can with the Hebrew word odd, meaning towards, with a view towards. And that's how it should be understood in, in uh, Psalm 110.1. Sit at my right hand with a view towards your enemies becoming a footstool for your feet. With the purpose of, for the purpose of. So, how would this, if, if that in fact is the case with our verse, what... Uh, how should we translate it? With the result that all is accomplished. Not the smallest letter or the smallest stroke of a letter will pass away with a view to all being accomplished. Because if you have one of the smallest strokes passing away, not everything is going to be accomplished, right? Because that small stroke is not going to be accomplished. The almost identical phrase is found in Matthew twenty-four thirty-four. Truly I say to you, This generation will not pass away until all these things take place. The emphasis here is not to describe when the generation will pass away, but upon the fact that those things spoken of will be accomplished within that generation. In similar fashion, Yeshua describes the eternal nature of the Torah, which results in the accomplishment of all that God wills to be done through it. So what does it mean that all is accomplished? The the verb uh, ginomai, we have the aorist tense here, genete, Aorist means something that is uh, firmed, confirmed, as though it had already happened, not necessarily that it has. It means to be, to exist, to happen. It's in parallel to the previous fulfilled in verse 17. God has a purpose in the Torah, and it is linked by our master to the prophets, for he speaks initially of the Torah and the prophets. Nothing will stand in the way of God's purpose in regard to the Torah, for the Torah embodies the eternal covenant made with his chosen people. And the prophets have spoken the word of Adonai through which he accomplishes all of his holy will. So he's saying this all has wide and full ramification. You can't take any part of it away. And if you take any part of it away, 
It's not going to affect the Torah. It's just going to affect you. As he's going to tell us in the next verse. Let's just introduce that next verse since we have it on our page here. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments, we could say breaks, and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he should be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Just by way of overview, some have said, well, didn't Yeshua say that the least shall be the greatest? So wouldn't you want to be called least? In no, he doesn't say that. He doesn't say the one who is called least will be the greatest. He said the one who is a servant of all will be the greatest. It's one thing to look at yourself as servant and look at yourself as least. It's quite another thing to have God pronounce to you that you are the least. That's a different, that's a different metaphor altogether. As I said in the uh, English translation that we have here, <coughs> when it says whoever then annuls, the word then actually is therefore. Therefore, whoever annuls. So it takes us back to the previous verse. As Allison Davies' comment, within the present context of Matthew, 5.19 follows well upon 5.18. If the law remains valid even down to its jots and tittles, then it must be practiced and taught in its entirety. A liberal attitude towards the law is not in order. All antinomian tendencies are excluded. Okay, so let's look at the parallels now between 17.18 and 19. He started out in 17 to say, I didn't come to abolish which he explains in our current verse, verse 18, to mean pass away, and which he further explains in verse 19 to say anyone who annuls. I didn't come to abolish. I didn't come to cause any part of the Torah to pass away. Therefore, anybody who breaks one of these and teaches others to break them will be called least in the kingdom. That's not my purpose. My purpose is not to do such a thing to the Torah. Rather, Yeshua says, I came to fulfill. In verse 18, what does that mean? To accomplish everything. To, that everything would be accomplished, would, be, would happen as God intends and plans. And what does that mean for us? It means we should do the commandments and we should teach others to do them. It's a very obvious parallel. It doesn't take a rocket scientist or even a theologian to read that and, and see how well it fits together. So these parallels continue to aid us in understanding our Master's words. The idea of abolishing the Torah is to act as though it has passed away, ceased to exist, and thus to annul the effect of the commandments. Conversely, to fulfill is to live in the context of God's purpose to accomplish His will through the Torah, and thus to obey it, that is, do it, and teach others to do likewise. And again, you know, I've said this time and again, I, I want to say it once more for whoever may eventually listen to this recording, if, if some do. I think there are a lot of believers, a lot of uh, good uh, Christians who are sincere, absolutely 100% sincere in their conviction that many, 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 or even most of the laws of Torah have nothing to do with them. And they don't feel at all a twinge of conscience in relationship to them. They really don't. I think almost all of us in this room can probably shake our heads and say, I know, I know what that's like. Because that's what we were told. We were taught. We were brought up on bacon eggs. We, 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 were, we were brought up on on uh, ball games on Saturday and, and Saturday was the work day. Saturday was the day that we, you know, and we just didn't give it a second thought. We had never ever stopped to ponder what the, the appointed times of God were and what they meant and what we were supposed to do with them. It was so off the radar scope that we didn't even know they existed. And frankly, to be honest with you, I think God understands that. I think His mercy extends to that. I'm not saying that he doesn't consider it still to be 
contrary to His will. But what I'm saying is, when we, when we come to a realization of what Yeshua has said here, and we don't allow overarching theologies to, to steal it away from our attention, when we come to that, we do say to the Lord, forgive me. You know, I mean, I don't know how many times I think back of my childhood and my growing up years and even my college and early years of graduate school and I think to myself, Lord, how grieved you must have been. Here I was pouring my life into studying your word. And I, some of the most simple and just everyday things that you wanted me to do. I had no idea. I had no idea. I can remember in the first year of seminary because I was, I was always a bit on the out, outskirts, and they were—they I didn't know this, but the, two or three years before I came, they had had this huge controversy over Calvinism, and they'd kicked out all the Calvinists, and uh, <clears throat> I didn't know that, and I walk on campus as a wet behind the ears, you know, freshman in graduate school, and I'm a Calvinist, and I'm letting everybody know it. And I get called into the office and I get informed immediately that I'm supposed to keep quiet about that kind of stuff. And I remember saying to someone then, you know what? If the Lord asked me to paint my nose green, I'd do it. And I wouldn't ask it. I wouldn't ask the second time why. I would just do it. So why can't we just take the Bible the way it is and just do it? And there I was (laughs) arguing for the abolition of the Torah at the same time. Uh, or, or at least the majority of it, at least the parts that I wasn't doing. Um, you know, you just you just have to look back and, and shake your head. And so we have to be very careful that in in the strong emphasis that we have on the enduring nature of the Torah, that we don't immediately go around and start pointing fingers at people. You know, this message comes to us personally. This message asks us, what are we doing to be great in the kingdom? To, to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what we're to ask. Sure, we're to teach others, but we have to be good teachers. We have to be careful teachers. We don't, you know, any teacher that starts out with a baseball bat doesn't get very far. You know, so, um, I, you know, I, I know that in these, in these uh, studies, we, we're very bold about the Torah. And it sometimes can come across as though uh, we have no regard for our brothers and sisters outside of the circle in which we fellowship. But, but we must. We must have regard for them. And we must recognize that there are many, many who have a true heart for the Lord and desire to obey Him and desire to serve Him. And uh, even some who resist this message at first. You know, Many of us have had those experiences where we've had people that were very, very antagonistic to the issues of Torah. And over time, they, they, as they studied it and as they became more aware of what it means and what it is and how it is God's Word, it became... Uh, something very precious to them. So, anyway, just that word of exhortation and encouragement as we as we go and take this message and do what Yeshua says to do. Do it and teach it. You've been listening to the commentary on the Gospel of Matthew podcast with Torah Resource President and Instructor Tim Haig. If you like this teaching and want to hear more, please visit us at TorahResource.com. Join us again next week as Tim takes us through another verse-by-verse lesson in the Gospel of Matthew.